Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. So welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan. We started listening to a little bit of Unbelievers by Vampire Weekend, but then I think it jumped a little bit. But, we happen yeah. to be human. Yeah. So yeah. just so, to remind you that yeah. we are not infallible. It's oh, this a- is Claire Van Winkle, the co-host who today will sound husky and sexy. Just pretend it's on purpose and not because of my winter sore throat. We'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, it's a live show, so... Guys, so is this the this the real deal, right? Yeah, so we just yeah. have to hope I stay alive for the rest uh, of the show. Yeah. <laughs> so our guest today is Marie Carter. Uh, Marie Carter is a graduate of Edinburgh University, a Scottish writer, editor, writing teacher, and tour guide based in New York City. Her first book, The Trapeze Diaries, is based on her experiences of learning the trapeze. It was published by Hang Loose Press. She's also the editor of the anthology Word Jig, New Fiction from Scotland. Marie is a tour guide with the Bars of the Dead, a walking tour company for the macabre, uh, strange and ghostly stories of the Bar of New York City's. Uh, she is a frequent lecturer at Asura's QED. Marie teaches memoir and creative writing at Gotham's work- Writers Workshop. Welcome, Marie. I've Good just morning. kind of figured out also she does everything, so that's kind of her job title to me. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, welcome. So, tell welcome. us, Tell us your life. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. So why don't we start with uh, your writings and trapeze diaries uh, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, all the good stuff and how that came about. And I want to know yeah. what it's like to be on a trapeze. That's yeah. sort of a dream of mine. Uh-huh. Uh, so I moved to New York City in 2000. And I was one of those kids at school that nobody would pick to go in the race with them or or be on their sports team. And I always had this idea that I was just a complete dunce at physical sports. Soulmate. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, um, I used to watch circus artists and I 
loved watching them. I thought they were just so beautiful and graceful, but I'm terrified of heights and physical dunce again. And then I heard that a, a company called Lava was teaching trapeze in Brooklyn. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to give it a go and see how I like it. And if it's if I'm terrible at it, if I suck, if I hate it, I'll never go again. And the strange thing was, I was, I absolutely sucked. I was terrible. Everybody else in the class was a dancer. They were really good at trapeze. They picked it up right away. They weren't scared. Um, and it took me just 10 weeks to do a basic knee hang, like just to get to you, the point where I was like, yeah. okay, I'm not scared of you being You know that all those hang. people are pretending, by the way. <laughs> The reason people like wear eyeliner to ballet classes and smile a lot and like get matching workout uniforms and things like that, we're all faking it. Well, I did a terrible job of faking. <laughs> good, good. Thanks was for being true. Like, oh my god, this is terrifying. <clears throat> but the weird thing was, is like I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved uh, challenging myself like that. I loved. Um, I love that feeling of being terrified and still doing it anyway. And I got addicted to it. And the other thing that started happening was like I had placed these labels on myself, like physical dunce, terrified of heights, incapable of doing anything like this. And then slowly through these lessons, I started to learn and do tricks that I never thought in a million years I'd be able to do. Like, for example, the one knee hang. I used to watch other trapeze artists and go, I'll never be able to do that again by myself. That's beautiful, but not for me. And then eventually I was able to do it. And I started looking at my life and going, where else have I been shortchanging myself? So it was a real transformational period for me. And I started writing these little vignettes about it, not thinking that anything would really come of it. And then it started evolving into a book. <laughs> oh. Yeah, actually, pub yeah. public speaking is like my trapeze. I am. I have uh -huh. the worst stage fright ever. I mean, I don't know, Vijay, if you noticed it the, well, the first time you interviewed me. It took like lots of wine yeah. before. <laughs> and even every time I teach a class, I'm a teacher at CUNY and... Every time I teach a class, I'm terrified. Every time I come here and do the radio show, it's like, how can I not be terrified? But yeah, it's really great to embrace the kinds of things that originally scare you because it's the only way to open up your life experience and to move forward without changing yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but it is so hard. And I think it's almost discouraged these days because everyone wants to look cool, whatever that is. <laughs> so after you had this experience with the trapeze, um, I understand you, you wrote a book and then you you it was influenced by the balloonist. Oh yeah, by this Eulabus, uh, yeah, Eulibus, yeah. Uh -huh. Tell us a little bit about the structure of the novel or the memoir and uh, how it came to be. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Eulabus, her book is set up in these um, little prose poems that seem disconnected but then she kind of pulled them all together so that they were connected and that they linked up into this thread that's ultimately one big story about um, her family and the effect that divorce had on her later in life and I decided to use that 
a seemingly disjointed structure, but then pull it all together as one book. So it's essentially a series of prose poems that ultimately link up into one big book. For the benefit of a writer I just worked with yesterday at my writer's workshop, um, she's starting, well, she kind of hates the word memoir because it it sort of scares her in terms of a genre. So we threw that <laughs> word out the window because I totally get it yeah. um, about some very difficult things. And she's worried about writing about family and she's really mm. focused on structure all the time. Um, can you tell us maybe a little bit, and it doesn't have to be about a specific piece, but again, without labels, when you're looking at a chunk of your life or a certain type of experience, how do you begin, especially if there are parts of that story that involve other people that are personal to them? Yeah. Absolutely. How do you handle that? Yeah. Um, I, also, I should also say I was the last person in the world who thought I was going to write a memoir because well, I mean, memoir is a weird <laughs> word, right? Yeah, it has a gravitas to it. Like, yeah, you have to experience something like, really intense. And and I feel like we should always say memoir. <laughs> memoir, yeah. Like, yeah. Who has the, uh, the life story to be able to write a memoir? And then, you know, but many people do. And you were talking right. about, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so memoir comes from the French word memory. Mm. Yeah. And that is always a tricky word anyway mm -hmm. because everybody it's like imagination has, from right. image um yeah. it's uh it comes from memory is really tricky because everybody's memory is slightly different of the same thing um and the other thing that is tricky about memoir of course is that you're writing about real people and sometimes people who often people who are still in your life so i think I think a lot of my students find this really challenging as well because they're like, what happens when this is out in the world and what are people going to think of me? And one of the things that I was told, well, first of all, I had no sense that I was going to be writing a memoir. I just started with these a little memoir. vignettes. Yeah. <laughs> I just started with these little vignettes that slowly built up. And the other thing that happened was at a certain point, I started to get that stage fright thing with what will other people think of me? How is this going to affect the people in my life? Yeah. And one of my editors said, just write this as though nobody is ever going to read it. And that kind of freed me up mm -hmm. quite a lot. I was like, all right. Um, and I just happened to get a writing residency at McDowell around that time, which was great because I got to go off in the woods and write and not think about anybody in my life and just pretend that nobody mm -hmm. was ever going to read this. And so I did the version where I was like, let's pretend nobody reads this and I am free to say whatever I want. And then after I'd done that and I got back from the residency, I then re-looked at it and said, what am I okay with people seeing? And I actually found that I didn't edit out all that much after mm. that. Mm. I think it's part of it is just forgetting that fear for a moment and just allowing you to be allowing yourself to be honest and write what you need to write mm -hmm. and also have a talk with the loved ones you're still with who are still with you in your life and ask them and talk to them about the the book or the piece before it comes out and tell them that this is 
your memories, your version of memories, and it's not ever, it doesn't represent the whole piece of the pie of the relationship. It's like a small slice of of um, your life and, and their life, and it's not necessarily everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. It seems like you uh, were inspired by the idea of breaking free from old story structures. Mm-hmm. That was part of the inspiration writing and also trying yeah. to trying to break free of like your old conceptions of yourself and and getting that new conception and uh, and the structure was about that and um, uh, and now now you're working on a book um, uh, Holly's Hurricane. Yeah, so this is a novel. Into that, yeah, yeah. So this is a novel that came out last year. Um, that was inspired by Hurricane Sandy. Mm. So uh, right around the time of Hurricane Sandy, I was living in Brooklyn. Most of my jobs were in Manhattan. And the day after I was lucky that I was in a zone where I didn't lose any power, everything was back on the next day. But in Manhattan, where most of my jobs were, everything was just shut down for at least a week. And the other thing was I had a bike, so I could get around very easily. It was like a godsend at that time. Mm. So I decided that I would make myself useful in that week, and I would go around, and I would volunteer, and I would um, in help Manhattan. out. And, um, yeah. Sometimes in Manhattan, sometimes in Red Hook, which was also right. nearby, and that had been really devastated. Yeah. So I got to see a lot of the effects of the hurricane and at the same time, I had just gotten into this podcast called The Bowery Boys, and it's this history podcast about New York City. And um, one of my jobs was in the Woolworth building. I just absolutely loved that building, and um, I love the history of it, which um, The Bowery Boys kind of um, laid out for me very simply. Um, that's what I like about them. You don't have to get this huge academic text to find out about the slice of New York City history life. And I was thinking a lot about history and various histories that have been forgotten, and that's also come into um, my work as a tour guide. And these things started to come together um, because a lot of the news reports about Hurricane Sandy at the time was, well, this is what we can expect more of in the future. Mm And so I started thinking, well, you know, even 20 years from now, what are these hurricanes' impact going to be on our cities? And also, what is that going to do to our collective memory of history? Because now there are so many things that have been forgotten for various reasons. You know, it could be that it's maybe an embarrassing or uh, kind of uh, part of our history that it makes people uncomfortable, like slavery or it could be that it's a part of our history that is forgotten because of a particular event that happened after, like the General Slocum disaster, where um, hundreds of um, German-American lives were lost. And um, But this happened just before World War I, so afterwards the, the German population in New York fell out of favor. So this uh, disaster was pretty much wiped out of the history books. So I'm looking, um, the book is set in 2040. It's when a Category 4 hurricane hits New York. Can, can I just ask you one yeah. question? Because I'm fascinated by how you have all of these types of perspectives. So what did you think when you came out to Rockaway writing this book? 
Um, I did not go out to Rockaway. I just um, oh, okay. I just heard about what was going on in Rockaway. Um, I was actually um, volunteering in Red Hook. Right. Yeah. A lot of people went to Red Hook and not to Rockaway. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah, I was just working in Rockaway right before the hurricane. Right. And then I ended up leaving right right before. But I did a little bit of uh, surveying. You know, the area was really damaged. And library right. did a lot of Peninsula did like a book bus. Uh-huh. Library done a book bus that helped uh, provide services during that time. So, yeah, there are still yeah. so many homes that yeah. are not built yet, and yeah. the entire summer culture. Yeah, it's it's something. It's it's this ongoing story. Yeah. Sorry, I hadn't realized that you hadn't visited. I just because <laughs> I thought you were like all over the place. And see, um, I'm sorry, but you were going back to um, talking about your book set in 2040, you said? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so the book is set in 2040 and there's an architect who's originally from England and she leaves New York city just before the hurricane is about to touch down. Oh, yeah. And she goes to Boston, Lincolnshire, which, um, not a lot of people know that there's a Boston in England. <laughs> Yeah. Um, because it's now this tiny little retirement town that's pretty much forgotten. It used to, back in the 14th century, it was the second biggest port in England. And now it's just the place where people go to retire and do farming. But it has a lot of the um, history of pilgrims, of course, because a lot of the pilgrims who came over to the U.S. were originally in Boston and England. So they have the original jail cells where they kept the pilgrims and they have a lot of this history there. And I thought that was a really great place to set it because it's got all these um, historic connections. Um, and it's also kind of, it's also one of these forgotten places. And I mm-hmm. wanted to write about a lot of New York's forgotten history and um, how we might move forward in our collective memory of, of things if something like a Category 4 hurricane has like a devastating impact on New York. Yeah, it's so interesting that you got inspiration from A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Uh, so what was the thinking behind that? Or how did Wait, you, you're talking about, about the hurricane? Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just to say, I got here a little yeah. later than okay. VJ, yeah. so sometimes I miss on that pre-conversation. Yeah. So now, <laughs> if you guys could integrate the Christmas Carol for me, yeah. maybe that would help our listeners too. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, from. Yeah, so uh, this architect, um, the way that the history gets integrated into this is that while she is in Boston, England, she starts having all these hallucinations where she is guided around New York City's past by a character she starts calling the architect because he kind of dresses very professionally, kind of looks a little bit like her. He knows a lot about architecture. And part of the pieces of the puzzle in this book is that um, the reader has to try and figure out who this architect character is, um, and it's revealed at the end. But um, the Christmas Carol part is really um, the structure of that comes from the you know the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future come up to uh, give Ebenezer Scrooge some kind of lesson, and that structure is a little bit in Holly's Hurricane in mm. that um, this architect figure comes up and shows her the possibilities of utilizing the past to move forward in the future so is awesome. is holly like a throwback to that yeah she's okay, a little cool. bit like she's the name since christmas bit, yeah christmas yeah, holly yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh, nice. nice. I, I, I love didn't that. realize that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm the person who looks at like an ad for a used car, and I'm like, "Oh wow, did they rhyme that on purpose?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you also, as you were saying about the tour guides, you do a lot of uh, research into the history of New York, and mm-hmm. uh, you do the tours of of New York. So why don't we go a little bit into like uh, what you've learned about the history of New York and the fascinating aspects of new york and and how it ties in maybe into the book or or not or something like that yeah 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 um one of my favorite tours to do with birds of the dead is forgotten dark histories of lower manhattan and that's where we go to the usual sites that tourists go places like france's tavern um the wall street stock market um but then we go into some of the sort of darker histories that people have forgotten about, uh, things like the 1741 slave rebellions, um, things like uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Bird's feud, and maybe some more of the secret aspects of that that people don't really know about, how many people are really buried in Trinity Church. Um, mm. And, and uh, there's a moment where I take people down uh, the hill of because tr- people Past are the like Starbucks because yeah. <laughs> I'm like a hundred. It's 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 thought that about a hundred thousand people are buried in Trinity Church, and they're all like, "What?" And then I take them down the hill, and they start going, "Oh, yeah. <laughs> we see, yeah. we see." Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, that's that's one of my my favorites, and I because I live in Astoria, I also like and I created this tour. I love the um, haunting um, histories and legends of Astoria, and so we go into some of the more forgotten macabre aspects of Astoria's history, including the General Slocum disaster, which was the biggest disaster in one in a single day in new york city before september 11th but it's largely been forgotten mm-hmm. and my other favorite tour is roosevelt island which mm-hmm. is now this sort of beautiful gentrified little piece of the city but it has such a macabre past like with the smallpox hospital the Strecker lab uh, the um, old lunatic asylum so like the leper the leper colony of new york right. city exactly mm-hmm. exactly it's kind of like where the city was like let's put all these people who are a problem desirable <laughs> yeah let's just dump them on this island and um, it was abandoned. Most of it was abandoned in the 50s. And so there was like all these creepy ruins left behind, mm-hmm. uh, some of which have been destroyed, some of which, which have been repurposed, some of which are still ruins like the smallpox hospital. And it's in fact, it's the um, only ruin that um, is on the National Historic Register in the, ni- in the United States. So I'm going to take a moment to listen a little bit from Holly's Hurricane. Uh, we'll get a little selection from that, so uh-huh. listeners will be able to uh, hear a little bit from the book. Uh, it came out last year or this year? Yeah, in November, year? November of okay, last, November year. last year. Yeah, great, great. So if you can find that online and such. Yeah. Yeah, great, yeah. great. So this um, comes right from the opening. And uh, this is when Holly is about to go into one of her hallucinations. Chapter 1, Penn Station, 1910 to 1963. One minute I am sitting with my mom in the nursing home in Boston, England. 
The next I was transported to the Strid, the stream that lurks about a hundred yards from the nursing home with all the danger signs. It looks perfectly benign, but because of its deadly combination of fast current and underwater rocks, anyone who has ever jumped in or gone swimming in the Strid has died. They put the first danger signs up about 50 years ago, after the third person had gone missing. But still, about 20 years ago, some troublemaker had dipped a toe in and was grabbed by the current as if by a hungry monster, angry with the daredevil for even tempting fate. I was standing by the strid when I saw a man who looked faintly familiar sporting pince-nez glasses, a salt-and-pepper thick moustache and wearing a bowler hat. He was stylishly dressed and a little portly. In fact, I would have said he had a similar profession to mine, like an architect, except he seemed to be from another era. He took his hat off as a gesture and I could see his hair was parted down the middle. He beckoned me to come closer and gestured for me to look into the water. The remarkable thing was I didn't feel unsafe. There was something fatherly about the man, something I trusted. As I drew closer and closer, I noticed a kind of whirlpool gaining more and more momentum in the strid. The noise of the water suddenly became deafening, which was a shock to me as I couldn't hear it earlier. The man said very simply, Hello, Miss Williams. And then, without warning, to my horror, the man pushed me in. I was instantly suctioned into a whirlpool, but... To my amazement, I didn't get wet, and in spite of my age, I felt no discomfort. In fact, I felt light, and all of my daily aches and pains seemed to evaporate. I found myself in a vacuous, tunnel-like interior, and I was falling like Alice down the rabbit hole, but in slow motion, as though I had developed wings. This was a relief. At my age, broken bones are harder to repair. I landed weightlessly at the bottom of the steps of an imposing building that looked like an ancient Roman temple. I could barely feel my body, and I noticed I appeared to be see-through. My hands were opaque. The architect was right behind me, looking at me, smiling, very proper and gentlemanly. He began climbing the steps of the building like an animated fairy sprite, turning and beckoning me to follow, but I stood gaping with a goldfish mouth and tranced. The structure was reminiscent of French palaces and Italian basilicas. The giant granite and steel facade was supported by Roman columns. The architecture bounced impatiently on the steps, calling to me, Miss Williams, and becoming afraid I might lose my guide, I began climbing to the top, punctuating each stair with a heavy footsteps. I felt like a Roman goddess. Entering the gargantuan doors, I could hear crackly announcements being made over a PA system for what seemed to be the names of places and times. Commuters in stylish heels clicked past me. Excellent, excellent. Lovely. Lovely, lovely. I really like how you move your character through the scene. Um, It's very difficult as a novelist to find that balance of creating a physical space by having your protagonist or any character interact with it rather mm-hmm. than making the establishing shot and then putting the action in. So I thought that was pretty brilliant. Yeah, it was very nice. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, so that was from Holly's Hurricane. I'm Marie Carter. This is uh, Radio Free Brooklyn on Truth to Power Show. We're talking a little bit about what we were talking previously about the Trapeze Diaries, uh, her memoir, and now we're talking about the new novel that came out in November of last year. And... Um, so now we'll go a little bit into your life story, a little bit more into some of the other jobs. Um, you know, uh, apparently you taught yoga. 
Mm-hmm. So Kundalini Yoga, I guess, I guess was Kundalini Yoga yeah, was a Kundalini. big in- influence in your life. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that impacted you and and, uh, and a little bit about kind of what your understanding of that philosophy is, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I when I originally started out in vinyasa, as, as most people uh, do, yeah. and, and part, part of it was because I wanted um, something to complement trapeze and to help me get stronger. So I started out with... <laughs> vinyasa um but i started to find that um i needed something more i needed something meditative um to take me a little bit further and deeper into yoga and uh i just happened to be trying out a bunch of yoga studios and about 10 years ago and i encountered my teacher harry carr and what's so interesting about Harry Carr is that she she does the whole dressing up in white turban. She looks like she could be very extreme. Is and she, I've, I've is she or was she associated with the studio or uh, she was originally teaching at Golden Bridge, but now okay. she has her own studio. Sorry, sorry <laughs> to interrupt. Um, so she. And I've always been very wary of people who are very extremist in their religious or spiritual philosophies. So I was a little cautious around her at first. But then what I found is actually her personality and her philosophy, her approach to yoga was actually anything but extreme. And one of the things that really endear me to her, I've been vegetarian since I was 10 years old. I, um, I've also, I also tried being vegan for a while. And what I found problematic with the yoga community was sometimes there was a lot of judgment around people who decided being vegetarian wasn't for them. And I was like, well, that was my decision that I made when I was 10 years old, and it's something that's deeply personal to me. Mm -hmm. And if that is not someone else's path, then I'm not going to judge that. And a lot of yogis say that the word ahimsa means that you're not supposed to eat meat. Um, it's like it means nonviolence, so therefore you shouldn't eat meat. And I loved what Hari had to say about that. She said, um, "She said, do not um, get up, don't get caught up in this cycle of judgment and blame. Ahimsa really means that you wish the best for everybody." Yeah. And I was like, "Wow, that's so beautiful. I I love that." And and that was. Um, that became a guiding philosophy for me, like to try my best not to judge people um, based on what their needs and beliefs are and to just wish the best for everybody. And I also, as somebody who is um, vegetarian slash vegan, um, I have encountered issues uh, when traveling overseas. Like in, mm-hmm. I have gone to Southeast Asia several times where I'm I'm vegan, but if somebody puts down a dish that has some egg in it and has prepared it in her small kitchen through a language barrier and they don't have the same resources that I do, I'm not going to like throw it away, right? right? Um, But I also just love the idea of educating people about these things. And I think offering more vegan options has definitely been something that in a very positive way um 
put adds this to a lifestyle, which necessarily helps to, with absolute positivity, work toward that change of ahimsa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also yeah, for our listeners, nice. you know, Kundalini Yoga, I think, uh, established itself as separate or different or unique or it's unique philosophy in the, in the idea. I understand that, that it's the awakening channel of chakras. Like yeah. you slowly move up the chakra from the base chakra to the most aligned. If you tell, give a general overview for those who don't know, uh, it's part of the, um, Vedantic or Hindu tradition that, uh, uh, kind of visualizes the awakening. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And also include the things that maybe personally you love about it, because yeah. I feel when I'm talking with fellow yoga teachers, yeah. uh, it's sometimes about how it's supposed to be. But at, maybe talk a little bit about as you learn <clears throat> learned the quote unquote right way to do it, how how you came into that experience in those stages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think what. Um, people who study vinyasa yoga would find if they go to kundalini is that kundalini um, has repetitive movements and it uses a wide variety of um, methods to get you to the same um, still point. Mm. And uh, rather than um, doing a whole series of vinyasas and so forth, uh, there are these series of kriyas that were left behind by Yogi Bhajan, who brought uh, Kundalini to the United States. And th- there's a whole plethora of these different kriyas. So, like every class you'll go to in Kundalini is different, which is mm-hmm. exciting for me because <laughs> I, 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 I get bored very easily. So I like that. I can't <laughs> Kundal- imagine with yeah. all of the things that you do in your life that you're ever bored. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that's why I need to do all these different things because <laughs> I do get bored easily. Uh, so every class is a little bit different and sometimes they will use mantras. Sometimes they'll use these repetitive movements. And the other philosophy that they have is that, um, you have to get the body out of the way before you can meditate. So they will lose, you will move a lot. You will use your body physically quite a bit. And so that's ultimately building up to this meditation moment at the end. Like you usually have about 11 minute meditation at the end of class that, um, and so that you've done all this movement and you, you've kind of like gotten out all your frustration, your anger, and you're ready to kind of sit down and meditate. Can you tell us where the 11 comes from? I'm working with my students about, uh, the meaning of numbers in history. Is it? Oh, um, is it I like have the to, I have to last step on the twelvefold? Is it the twelvefold path? What, uh, uh, no, eightfold path. Eightfold. Is sorry, the, uh, sorry. This is like Vijay's yeah, area, yeah. but yeah. Sorry, and not not to put you on the spot. It's just I'm teaching. I I study fairy tales, and I'm teaching fairy oh. tales right now, and we're talking about all of the different. Uh, meanings of numbers and we've got three and four and seven and 10 and 12 and all of these things. Um, but 11. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I mean, I, this I, is, we can tell I, our readers to just look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, our listeners. <laughs> I, I know there is this aspect of Kundalini that gets into the numerology of things and that mm, yeah. wasn't something that I was all that 
interested in, mm-hmm. so I don't really know that It wasn't much your about first <laughs> interest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared of math, kind of so yeah. the minute anyone starts talking to me about numbers, I kind of glaze over a little bit and I get scared. Yeah, but I know like with chakras, like a lot of people tend to focus on the heart chakra and focus on opening the heart. Right. That. Was right. there a particular chakra that resonated with you that really you felt like you were abiding in mostly? Um, probably the second. The, so, yeah. the, the Can you explain to us what, what the chakras are and how they're perceived and how one works with them or the idea of having one one blocked which sometimes sounds yeah, like so, yeah. <laughs> that people you say have to that. bring in a plumber people say that yeah. and I, i'm like yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you need a bypass or something yeah. Yeah. <laughs> chakra bypass yeah so there are energy points that are always spinning um yeah. and sometimes they can get stuck and you can unstuck Sick them through through meditation. And in terms of the relationship energy. to the body and yeah, um, so uh, and then and then each chakra there there's um, seven or sometimes people see that there's eight. Yeah, um, the eighth is your aura, um, but they all represent different kinds of energy. Um, so the first chakra is about um, being grounded, about being part of the earth. Is this the root? The root okay. chakra, chakra yeah, yes. Yeah. And then the second chakra is, um, some people say it's about sexuality, but um, I sort of think of it more of a creativity thing. Yeah. Um, well, sex tends to create yeah. things every once in a while, whether we yeah. want to or not. But I think I think like saying that it's creativity makes it more all encompassing. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is the navel point, so it's like your your power base. Um, that one's probably the one that needs the most work for me. Um, and then the fourth one, of course, is the heart, which is what everyone is always talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Uh, the fifth is the throat, your communication with the world. Um, what is the sixth again? Is it the, uh, the, eye? Third the, eye. Eye. the third eye. The third eye, yeah. yeah. Third eye, yeah. Um, and then seventh is the crown. Uh, and then yeah. and then I think in Kundalini the, the, um, there is an eighth chakra, which is your aura. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. interesting, interesting. And like when we talk about like opening up a heart or just opening up that thing, is it mainly about you know, connect with compassion, connecting with this thing or opening up, right. of, you know, opening up of these chakras. Oh, it's still, it's pretty nebulous, but we understand that energy flows through us and we're able to loosen up and, and, and be more communicative or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So what, and you started teaching, um, yoga a mm-hmm. long time. How, how was your experience teaching it? How did that change? Uh, how did that change your experience of yoga? Um, it, um, hmm. Um, it was both a positive and um, and in some ways a, a negative. Like um, so, in positive sense, um, I really felt like I could make a difference in people's lives. Um, yeah. One time, a woman came to a yoga class and she was really frantic because her father was in surgery, and she was like, "I just don't know what to do with myself right now," and I just felt like I needed to come to a yoga class. And I watched her transform from being this very agitated, worried person. And I did a kundalini yoga meditation with her at the end. And I just like watched her become very still and much more calm. And I think that's good, not just for her, but 
for her father to have a sort of much more calm, still presence there when he gets out of surgery. I thought, wow, that's that's really wonderful. Um, but on the downside, I started to see the um, the economic aspects of yoga and. Yeah. It's. I mean, I don't want it to sound judgmental either because uh, New York is such a hard place to make a living um, and rents are so high and so many yoga studios are are struggling. And so I also kind of got to see this, you know, the darker aspects of, of the yoga world. It's, well. Yeah, I, I've often talked about the epidemic of people willing to do yoga uh, for no pay. Mm -hmm. And how that is kind of take, I, I and mean, people say, oh, this is great. Yoga is accessible to everybody. But in a way, it's taking yoga and making it only for a certain class, I guess, socioeconomic yeah. class. Mm -hmm. And we can afford to do that. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. I think as yoga teachers, I'm also a yoga teacher. Um, and I have the privilege of working at a studio where my boss, I make, she pays me about the same per hour teaching yoga as I make teaching, um, college, which is great on the yoga end and is kind of like, what the fuck on the college end. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but the other studio I worked at in the same neighborhood couldn't afford that. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I would only make $20, just not even including my, you know, my commute there. I think there's just so many people willing to do it for free. And yeah, community centers are awesome, but when it, when it is devalued in a certain way, in a certain way, we are taking yoga teachers out of the equation because yes, yoga it improves everybody's lives, but if we think about it, if doing yoga and taking that time is um harming the yoga teacher's life, right? Um yeah, so I don't know. This is this is my shout out, and, and sometimes it's the same with musicians too, yeah. and and writers who are willing to put all of their stuff just on blogs and not, you know, try that, and undercutting with stuff like Fiverr and all of these um, seemingly great ideas. I think that okay. Here's my. I rarely like do a call to action, but. Make sure that when you engage in an art or in something that helps somebody that you are considering how that affects you and that you are at least discussing the value and coming up with a fair trade for it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Says so the true. person who volunteers as a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> so true. So well, there are reasons for that, though. There are reasons, I promise. Yeah, we're talking um, a little bit about kind of like what, what we'd like to see, what we'd like to envision, what we'd like to create in this world. So in that regard, Marie, um, you know, one of the questions is about, uh, you know, if everything you have, everything you wanted, what would your life look like and how would it feel? How would you act? What would, what would you be? Uh, you had an interesting answer, so I just want to see if you can, you know, that you need to reproduce it, but... Um, yeah. Oh gosh! But I remember, remember it my for word yeah. and tell our listeners. Yeah. Totally forgot my. Yeah. You're talking about struggle with uh, uh, being introverted and all that. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you make up a new answer, yeah, we won't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I could have everything I wanted, um, well, um, I, I would probably be um, writing full time. Um, 
I probably have a lot of cats. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking, yeah. would your ideal life involve cats or dogs? And I wasn't going to be judgy. But okay, I, I, liked you, I liked you before. I like you even more now. And yeah. I, I know my partner um, is hoping that Holly's Hurricane is a big hit so he can um, just stay at home all day and, <laughs> and be like a star in House Husbands of Astoria. Yeah. <laughs> Um, a stay-at-home cat dad that that is his ideal life yeah (laughs) he is he's a converted uh crazy cat man um yeah um but and i think this was like um it might have been on my um question sheet i do appreciate having struggles because they do make life interesting and i do I do like the fact that I have lots of different jobs because they make my life interesting and they give my life purpose. And I think I, um, so even if I like want a ton of money, I think I would still want to at least, I don't know, do a lot of cool volunteering things um, and have a variety of that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, for me as well. It's like you know, I I had off this week. I had some vacation time, and it's like you kind of end up spending the downtime just sitting around, you know, as opposed uh-huh. to you feeling more productive when you're at work and you right. feel a little more kind of engaged and such, you know. I started a poem once called "Vacation Time," but I couldn't figure out what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Even when I go on vacation, I find some way to write about it and turn it into a project. And yeah, 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 yeah. great, great. So as we start to wind now, we talk a little bit about, um, you know, just what's coming up for you as far as like uh, the themes of. Uh, I know you were saying that uh, the personal is political is a little bit of a cringe fest for you, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so what is your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um. I think I'm just um, I'm especially cringing because of the um, climate right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I feel, I mean, I mean saying um, it, yeah. obviously that, uh, coming from Scotland and a working class background, um, my views are politically pretty left. Yeah. Uh, left, uh, uh, but um, on the other hand, like I, um, I'm seeing this kind of extre- like polarizing extremism, like yeah. politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that that's kind of really upsetting to me right now. Um, where um, anyone who uh, and uh, and again, like I, you know, I'm on the liberal side, but I'm seeing a lot of liberals getting very judgmental and angry at anyone who expresses a different opinion. And yeah. I remember when there was a referendum in Scotland, and there were two people afterwards who were holding these signs, like she voted no, he voted yes. We're still talking to each other, mm-hmm. and I'm. Um, I realize that things are really contentious right now, and it's really, really hard to be civil sometimes. But um, I really wish we could find more of this common ground and try to find like what we have in common more than like what divides us. I think it was really interesting, and as somebody who also is like, I mean, you know, liberal and pretty much that road 
um, the fact that we a need to define ourselves. And every single time I sit down with somebody who wants to talk about politics, they have to be like, okay, just to tell you to start off, no matter what I say, I'm liberal. I believe in these things that you believe. So if I say something that sounds like I don't, don't hate me. This is my label, please. And then say it at the end. Yeah. And, and I think part of that has to do with, um, our, even what the idea of politics is, I think sometimes people forget the origins of ideas or words and just look at the current situation. And for example, politics is supposed to be a participatory process, mm-hmm. not just in yelling at people. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not, it shouldn't be about, I mean, <laughs> oh, and here, here, I'm going to do it again right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It shouldn't be just about protesting, but yes, okay, you should protest. Uh, But what I'm saying is that protesting is still working from the outside in and politics is supposed to be about coming together. And I hear people talking about identity politics and the idea of of making that part of your person and actually in my own family. um, I'll just... My parents haven't talked to one of the children in over a year. Um, Why? Follow, uh, my parents like Trump. Oh. She likes Hillary. Like Ooh. seriously, yeah. that that's, okay, yeah. that's kind yeah. of it. But but yeah. that's that's all. Yeah. And, right. And I don't know. I'm not gonna sort of. I'm, I don't want to judge that. But when the poli- when the politics is personal in that way yeah. it does mm. ca- kind of fucked up things like yeah. it's weird it, that we got here it's sort it's this dystopian reality that we haven't stepped back and said hey our political system is no longer the political system that this country is ba- supposed to be based on. Yeah, it seems like uh, mm-hmm. as we get to, we got to supposed to be, where, and I have to say, like, yeah. yes, I know that in the beginning there, you know, there was slavery, and I, I'm going to say that because I don't want to yeah. be judged. But the ideal behind people being part of government. Okay, I mean, it seems like mm-hmm. it seems like also that we got to a point where you know, uh, I saw this meme where you know, there's nine and the six, and two people on either side of it. And one person says nine, one person says six, right? Because mm-hmm. they're seeing it from reverse sides. I can see but, this going uh, somewhere sexual, yeah. but... No, no, no but... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, and then the other person, they're saying today's world is like one person saying nine, one person saying four. It's like we're so off the base of like where, you know, where people are just denying things we're seeing with their eyes and ears, you know? Where mm. Trump is saying things like, you know, he had the biggest uh, inauguration. That was way back when. But even that... <laughs> You know, that was a long time ago, but even, and every day it seems like it's more and more of this where they're just denying things that, you know, we can obviously hear and see, you know, where he denies that he's saying things that is on record as him saying, you know, and it seems like it's ridiculous that, uh, it's almost a devaluation of our own, uh, the people's, uh, you know, estimation of our interaction with this record, the record, you know. And I saw a great, I don't remember where it was, and I don't even know, I'm doing it in. I don't even know what the um, context of the whole show was, but somewhere, somehow, there has emerged this tendency to say, I feel like, instead of saying I think that or I believe that, I feel like this inauguration was blank. Then yeah. if someone calls you out on it, it's not like you're wrong. Yeah. It was, you had this feeling. Yeah. And, oh, it seemed. 
Um, but we do it. Uh, we've replaced believe with I feel like. Yeah. And totally, you know, covering our ass in terms of just making a statement and understanding that it's okay to make one statement and then change your mind and to say, I used to believe this because. And now I believe this because not I feel like things are different, are different now. And I feel like this person is blank. And if you watch, if you watch again, the debates or interviews with candidates, this is bipartisan, by the way, this is everybody. And I think it's really scary. I believe that it's really scary that this I feel like is becoming the standard way of communicating about anything, but especially ideas in relationships and politics and friendships and conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have to be evidence-based. We have to be kind of somewhat connected to the base reality, you know? And and yeah. our everyday language yeah. reflects reality. Yeah. Communication is pretty much everything. So it's not a picky thing to say, oh, well, what does that matter to say I feel versus it we ingrain it as an attitude and perpetuate it it's not it's exactly what you're saying that we need to you know be conscious of this yeah and also just to uh give a global view for the listeners who maybe haven't listened to the show previously uh you know we tried i tried to um you know gear the show towards personal truth as empowerment and, (laughs) and truth as empowerment rather than you know, thinking about the, the government and, and, and knee-jerk responses to what they're doing. We want to empower mm-hmm. ourselves and our communities. So we're having a truth to power show. I feel where, like you're you know, I yeah. feel like you're doing that very well. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, yeah. So we're able to like uh yeah, we're able to like basically try to, you know, empower ourselves in our communities and trying mm-hmm. to like um, you know, the aim of the show really is to get down to the nitty-gritty of what's what's real for us, you know? I think so, this yeah. and this um particular episode do you call it an episode episode okay. yeah episode i'm i'm really excited about the fact that it's always come back around to language yeah and it's always yeah. come back around to what project you're working on and yeah. boiled down to ideas about the self and how the self empowers the self and fits in with a power structure so I we we veered into a couple of name dropping, yeah. Um, but I I just I'm really thank you guys for it's it's difficult to keep on this track of yeah. bringing everything back to truth yeah. and how that applies to the arts. So exactly, exactly. thank you. Thank props you. to us. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Marie. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, um, we invite you to make a one-time donation, a monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, every cent helps us to continue to stay on air. So um, uh, go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. All contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Uh, again, this Brave Booking dog touched on it. Brave Booking is proud to announce that they're launching an after school program uh, for local teenagers in 2019 to help learn media literacy through uh, media making using hands on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or donating to this program, please go to raveforbooking.org slash after school. And remember, all donations are tax deductible. Yay. So if you'd like to listen to Brave Book on, on the Run, 
or in your car, go to reefforbooking.org slash iPhone or slash Android, and you can find out more uh, at reefforbooking.org. Uh, so since we tried to play Unbelievers a couple of times, and then... Uh, can I just I just yeah. want to throw one more thing in? Um, yeah. Just because my I run the Rockaway Writers Workshop, and the whole commitment of the Rockaway Writers Workshop is to make is to tell the voices of everybody and to make real quality yoga workshops like the ones in Manhattan about the same price as a yoga class. So we're about to have our next um, like unit, which is totally drop in if you want it to be called the Obsession Sessions. Oh, cool, cool. And it has it's for any genre. But anyway, check us out on uh, rockawaywritersworkshop.org or email me at Info at rockawaywritersworkshop.org. Excellent. excellent. Okay, BJ, back to you. Any last plugs? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to be speaking for the um, Greenwich Village Historical Society for Preservation um, at Tompkins Square Library on March 6th. I'm going to be talking about witches of downtown New York. I know lots of them. Fortune telling. (laughs) Seems so exciting. And also, I'll be doing a reading from Celebrity Sadhana on March 3rd at Q&Willow at uh, 530. So March 3rd, 5.30 in Q Willow Bookstore in Queens. I'll be doing it from Celebrity Southern, my new book. And email awesome. all listeners, if you have an idea for a show, something you would like to hear or something you would like to complain about, um, <laughs> go ahead and email us or find us on Facebook and we will be happy or shattered, but always open-minded. Excellent, excellent. So we listen to Unbelievers as we go out by Vampire Week the song we tried to play in the beginning. <laughs> Good afternoon. Good morning. Got a little soul, the world is a cold, cold place to be. Want a little warmth, but who's gonna save a little warmth for me? We know the fire ways, some believers all of us in the same. Girl, you and I would die, unbelievers bound to the tracks of the train. Should I be? Is this the fate that I?